Welcome to the Unstoppable Podcast, the official podcast of Unstoppable Domains. Join us each week to hear from leading experts in the exciting new fields of blockchain, cryptocurrency, and the decentralized web, where we talk about the future of the internet and what that means for humans like us. Not only will this podcast help you sound super smart around your friends, but you'll also learn how you can become a pioneer in this space and help lead the charge toward a more decentralized web. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Unstoppable Podcast. I'm your host, Diana Chen, and I'm here today with my co-host, Matthew Gold, co-founder and CEO at Unstoppable Domains, and our guest today, Raul Jordan, co-founder at Prismatic Labs. Welcome, Raul. So happy to have you here. Great. Good to meet you both, and uh, thank you for inviting me on the show. Take me back to when you first got interested in blockchain and Ethereum. When was that, and how did you get interested? Sure thing. So a little bit of a background on on myself. I'm originally from Honduras. I came to the U.S. uh, to study computer science at Harvard and kind of went down the path of like building, you know, kind of a traditional startup. Was just really enthralled by how much you could do by just having a computer connected to the Internet and being able to write code that affects real people across the world. Built a web web 2.0 startup uh, throughout that time. Um, You know, we received some funding. We grew it. And realized that it was really just not something I want to be working on for the next 10 years of my life. Around 2016, I met some of the earlier folks working on Ethereum, namely the guys from the Aragon team, the Augur team, uh, you know, Vitalik. And it was honestly amazing. These these people felt like they were living in the year 3000, just uh, really thinking far ahead about some interesting use cases of blockchain technology. And I realized that this was something that I really needed to, to get into as deep as possible. Not only did it feel like it had a lot of weight and potential for the world, um, but in my opinion, I think there were still a lot of unsolved problems at the fundamental layer of this technology before it can become useful to the world. So really, that was that was a key turning point. Realized that this is something I need to be doing. I just felt a natural draw to it. For sure. And do you mind sharing what were some of those use cases that got you interested initially? Yeah, absolutely. I think in the beginning, right, there were so many ambitious use cases. I guess when you first think about blockchain, it's really easy to imagine a world where it takes over everything, right? Like essentially you have financial systems that operate based on math and computers instead of human error and the whims of, uh, of the law. You start thinking about, you know, what if everyone around the world can have a bank account, right, without needing an actual bank? Um, you know, just a crypto wallet is enough. So these things are really, really appealing and really amazing long-term goals. Of course, the reality is still very far from it. Me realizing the gap between the current state and the desired state was what made it exciting exciting to work on this stuff. So, you know, of course, we're far from there, but that's just very motivating. For sure. And back in 2016, what were some of the best ways that you went about learning more about blockchain when you first heard about it? Uh, did you read books on it? Did you take courses, follow people on Twitter? What were some of your best resources for learning? Sure. I think it's important to have a lot of uh, healthy skepticism um, when learning about something new, especially during that time. Like I said, there were a lot of lofty ambitions being thrown around. This was kind of at the start of what was one of the largest bull markets in crypto. All sorts of projects, you know, that were trying to tokenize this, tokenize that, solve everything with the blockchain. And I knew these things just don't work. The reality was that like the right thing to be doing at that time was to be focusing a lot on the key infrastructure layer of this technology. 
So I, I spent a lot of time researching, you know, what are some of the biggest problems that the technology faces today and how come not as enough people are working on it? In particular, scalability was the biggest thing people were talking about at the time since the beginning. You know, blockchains in a simple state, they just don't scale. They're not meant to handle thousands of transactions per second. People from all over the world using them at the same time in the same way they could use, uh, you know, a centralized application or database. So really spent a lot of time following the key people in the space, I would say, namely Vitalik, key people in the Ethereum community, people working on scalability research, and just trying to find out, like, what is the best place for somebody to contribute to work on this stuff? So I think it's safe to say that pretty much everybody has heard of blockchain and Ethereum today, at least they're familiar with the words. But I think a lot of people are still a little unclear about what blockchain actually is or what Ethereum is beyond a cryptocurrency. I think a lot of, you know, just the general public still thinks uh, Ethereum is the same thing as Bitcoin is the same thing as any other cryptocurrency. So how would you explain to somebody like that, what blockchain is and what Ethereum is in a simple to understand way and, and also in a way that gets them excited to learn more. Mm -hmm, absolutely. One of the major visions of Ethereum since the beginning has been this idea of like a world computer. So kind of what this means, right, is that when you think about the world around you, you have a lot of public goods that we might take for granted, right? Like you know, one of them is being able to connect to the internet from any computer, right? Like, sure, I mean, maybe you pay for you pay for your home internet provider, but you can go to internet cafes, you can go to places with free Wi-Fi. It's like this public good that we have, right? Like uh, the roads that we drive cars on, those are public goods. So, in general, you know, these things are these things are very powerful um, and are amazing because they allow for a lot of creativity to happen. Like the internet being this uh, kind of this open a real network um, that connects people all around the world makes it possible to build things that never existed before. You know, you can build e-commerce businesses where you can sell all sorts of things. Um, the way I think about Ethereum is Ethereum, basically, if you're a programmer, it allows you to run code uh, on like this world computer that is a shared resource between everyone, everyone around the world. So what I mean is that, you know, instead of hosting my software on like some server that I own or hosting it on AWS um, or some other some other hosting service, I can use this public network called Ethereum to run code and also run code from other people. Not only is this a, does it give you a really cool environment to run your code in, but it also gives you what we call a censorship resistant and permissionless environment. So that means the code that you run on Ethereum cannot be taken down by somebody because they don't like it. You know, they can't uh, censor you. They can't take it down. You know, if you if you live in a, in a perhaps in a country where censorship is is rampant, you know, this is a this is this gives you freedom, gives you optionality. Right? A cool example of this is that you can build a simple time-based escrow system. So, for example, I, I want to lock up some capital and then make sure that it gets released after a certain amount of time. You can build that sort of code on Ethereum. Um, people call it programmable money. So you can kind of build interesting applications, uh, financial applications on the public internet without needing, you know, a bank, without needing a centralized provider. Um, so it's, you know, Bitcoin does its job really well at being essentially what we call a store of value. There's a hard cap of 21 million bitcoins. It's it's a distributed network that is secured by miners, and it's it, it's it's really hard for somebody to bring down the network, right? Ethereum takes the same premise of building a network that is hard to bring down, but allowing you to do a lot more cooler or interesting things on top of it. 
Got it. So for people listening who are like, this all sounds really great. Why aren't we doing this already? What's your answer to that? What do you see as being some of the biggest roadblocks to widespread adoption and usage of blockchain? Sure. And I'm a healthy skeptic about some of these things as well. Um, so one thing to to realize is that when you think about the early days of the internet, people were always com- saying that like, oh, you know, how how is it better than X thing that we have in the real world, you know? Um, people are saying the internet is not good for anything else. It's just basically online uh, magazines. We already have physical magazines. Why do we need this? So it's providing a new platform where you can create all sorts of new things that didn't exist before. Um, you know, you couldn't have dreamt about social networks um, in, in the online sense before the internet by definition. So Ethereum in a way is creating kind of this new system where newer things are possible that are not possible in today's financial infrastructure. The problem today and why it's not big enough yet or why it's not useful enough yet is because we're still in the early days where people try to do things the old way using crypto and we're still just not there yet. You know, like, for example, blockchain networks, they only know about things that happen within the network. So, for example, let's say that we do a um, we do a bet. I make a bet with you about a sports game. So I say, okay, I bet you like five hundred dollars that my team wins. And we can put that on Ethereum. We can put that in a smart contract on Ethereum, right? And, you know, Ethereum doesn't know about the world of sports. Somebody has to tell it that, like, which team won, you know, and that becomes that becomes uh, the problem, right? Like, blockchains are really good about reaching consensus on things that happen within its bounds. Anything beyond that starts breaking down, you know? So the moment people try to use blockchain for things that are very much tied to the real world, you start having some discrepancies here. Um, and I think... What's interesting is that the the ecosystem is really maturing, it's blossoming, and there are a lot of new things being built on top of blockchain that are not possible before. But I still think we're in the early days, you know. I agree 100% that we're early. And I love building on the blockchain because it means that there's a whole lot of things as a developer that I just don't have to worry about, that I had to worry about previously around data, because I know once I publish something up there, it's good. <laughs> like, it's going to be exactly what it was um, for forever. So I like that that part of it. And then these other narratives are really great. It's like your wallet becomes your bank, right? And, and then your data is open and available between applications, and that's being improved upon. You can have certainty around an outcome like you were talking about because it's enforced in code. And now I can feel good about putting my money up there in code because I know what the outcome is going to be, assuming the contract is written well. And the interesting thing about these smart contract blockchains is that digital, like I think people understand digital money and a lot of people understand Bitcoin as digital money. uh, And what they're starting to realize is that like digital assets, which is everything in addition to digital money, is just like, it's 10 times more complicated, but it's also a thousand times more impactful on how it's going to hit everybody's life over the next uh, 10 years. So I'm very excited about seeing that. One of the things that I want to talk about a little bit more is actually Prismatic Labs, because you guys are a um, core contributor to some of the really big things that are happening on smart contract blockchain, specifically on Ethereum. Um, and one of the big things that you guys do is work on the proof of stake uh, portion for Ethereum. So do you mind giving our users a quick, you know, what is proof of stake? And then why is this important from the guys who are actually building it? I run a team that works on the fundamental code behind the Ethereum blockchain. So when you run a blockchain, that means you run some software that communicates with other software running the same code around the world to build this uh, kind of censorship resistant network, right? Nobody can bring it down unless a large portion of this network goes down. So how does this stuff work? So if you take a look at Bitcoin or Ethereum today, 
essentially you have people running these machines called miners that spend basically a lot of electricity and computational power to solve a bunch of difficult math problems and see which one gets there first. And they get rewarded for doing this. And what they're, what they're basically doing is that they're basically securing the network by packaging the transactions that happen across the network into this system. The reason that, that they say the blockchain is very secure is because there's a lot of collective uh, electricity and computational power put into this stuff. And therefore, for anyone to try to like revert the blockchain or try to try to like destroy it, they would need more computational power than all these people combined, you know. And when you have the power of the masses, it becomes really, really difficult to stop. Unfortunately, you know, the energy consumption of this is, uh, is extremely high and it makes you question, you know, is there a way that we can uh, we can build a secure blockchain without spending this much electricity? For reference, I believe the last metric I found was that Bitcoin uh, uses more than Argentina's electrical output, like almost every, I'm not sure, every day or every year or something like that. So, you know, there's got to be a way in which we can build a system that is secure without needing to, you know, kill the environment like this. Moreover, the problem with, uh, with proof-of-work blockchains is that, okay, let's say that somebody, like maybe the government, wanted to, wanted to overtake it. They could buy a lot of these machines and try to put a lot of energy behind it. And maybe we can try to like, uh, maybe the community can assemble. It can be like, okay, let's let's do something about this. But then the government still has these powerful machines that can keep attacking whatever network you create. So at the end of the day, the security of the network um, is directly tied to the electrical and computational input that you put into it. One of the things that we've been aiming for in Ethereum for a long time is we want to migrate away from using electricity and computational power to secure the blockchain. And the alternative to do this is that we make every participant that is securing the network put up what we call a stake. So you put up a large amount of Ether at stake and you lock it up. And essentially you you do as follows. So you follow the rules of some protocol. If you do something incorrectly or if you try to do malicious activity against the network, you will get your, your stake cut or you will get slashed and ejected, right? So it's a system that is based on punishments and having a high barrier to entry rather than uh, being a system that is uh, based on a global uh, race of spending electricity, right? So this is what we call proof of stake. And I think you did an excellent job there. And like the two main points, so you framed the problem really well, which is Bitcoin was great. And we invented this way to have decentralized consensus. And the way we did it was everyone's running these computers in their house that everyone calls miners. But the two problems with that are, one, it just uses way too much electricity <laughs> and, and we would like to not use that much electricity if we don't have to. And then two, it's theoretically maybe not as secure because if someone can just buy more miners than anyone else, like the government or something, then they could potentially come in and threaten uh, the network that way. So those are two. So you've just framed the problem for like why this matters, like why we're trying to tackle it. So like how does proof of stake solve it? So that's the old system. We have these miners with all this electricity and then proof of stake instead uses a new model where it's based on the users actually owning the cryptocurrency, correct? That's right. It's the users owning the cryptocurrency. They uh, put this money at stake and uh, essentially risk it if they do anything malicious. You know, if you're, if you're not evil, if you're not trying to kill the network, you will not be losing any money. Um, instead, you're going to be getting rewarded a small percentage interest for the amount that you, uh, that you locked up. So you've basically gotten rid of all this electricity usage and instead you have people putting up their own money uh, and then validating these transactions themselves. And so just to give people an idea, if Bitcoin's currently using as much electricity as all of Argentina 
if they move to a proof of stake model, how much electricity would they use? Would they use no electricity or like, I'm just trying to get an idea of the difference in scale here. Sure. So, you know, when you're running a miner, right, it's like this machine that is extremely hardcore. It's built to do that job. It, it basically is churning as many resources as possible, as much electricity as it can suck out of your outlet. When you're participating in proof of stake, that's just like running a regular, you know, software application on your computer, right? Which is, uh, you know, no different than, um, you'll just be spending several gigabytes of RAM and CPU and several cycles of CPU, but you won't be like creating this overwhelming demand for electricity. So it's just like running any software on a machine. So it's a lot less. It's like 1% as much. So, uh, and I know this because I actually get a lot of inbound from friends and family members. And some people in my family are very concerned about uh, the electricity use of running these Bitcoin, you know, blockchain networks. And I'm saying, well, people are moving past this. And that's actually what people talk about when they talk about Ethereum 2.0. Uh, so <laughs> I'm going to pass it back to you. So we had Ethereum 1.0 and then Ethereum 2.0. Um, Raul, can you tell us like, what's Ethereum 1.0 and then what's Ethereum 2.0? Uh, and then why are we building these both at the same time? <laughs> sure. Yeah. You know, people say like, if Ethereum 1.0 is so good, why is there no 2.0, right? The reason we're building 2.0 actually is because in the very beginning, um, Ethereum always wanted to be a proof-of-stake network. The problem with proof-of-stake networks is, as we mentioned, you need to lock up some amount of capital to participate, right? So, for example, let's say that tomorrow you want to build a proof-of-stake blockchain, right? You know, it's not going to have any value because, you know, the thing that you're locking up needs to have value enough so that it, people care about not losing it. Um, you know, I can create my own chain. I can call it like, a, I don't know, cat chain. Uh, if catching is worthless, uh, you know, then nobody's going to want to stake because uh, you need real value, real money locked up to secure a network. By starting Ethereum out as a proof of work chain, basically, you know, was able to grow. It was able to get a lot of mining activity. And Ether, the coin of the network, is, uh, you know, is, is at an all time high. It's worth over $1,500 per coin today. So it makes it, you know, there's real value at stake here. There's real value in the network today. So basically transitioning it from proof of work to proof of stake is a lot easier than it, it would have been since the beginning. Um, I think that's, that's kind of like why we're doing it. Um, we've always wanted to go to proof of stake for a long time. Additionally, there were also very difficult technical challenges to be solved to create a secure proof of stake chain. Uh, it's obviously a lot more complicated than just using electricity and, and miners there are a lot of things involved in figuring out how to do this. So it took a lot of time, a lot of years of research, um, but essentially, you know, the initial transition to proof of stake for Ethereum um, launched this past December in, uh, in, in 2020. And sorry if this is a basic question, but is proof of stake something that helps blockchain scale as well? Mm -hmm. um, good question. So at the end of the day, the scalability problem is, is fundamentally because you have all these computers around the world. And for example, if I send if I send Matt one Ether, every computer around the world has to be aware, you know, about how much Ether I have, how much Ether Matt has, and and basically that transaction I'm sending, you know, it's like everyone keeping basically this the spreadsheet and they have to update it and it becomes really expensive to do that, right? So fundamentally, it's the fact that the blockchain is so decentralized and so distributed that makes it, it really difficult to scale at the fundamental level. So no, Proof-of-Stake wouldn't really help with, uh, with scalability. Got it. And so who's all using Proof-of-Stake right now? Is it pretty commonly used or um, is it going to be a period of time until everybody is using Proof-of-Stake? Or is that even the goal for everyone to use Proof-of-Stake? 
Yeah, absolutely. So Ethereum, you know, has a lot of activity on it today. There's a lot of applications built on top of Ethereum today. Ethereum today is proof of work. You know, it's it's a blockchain. People use it around the world. Applications are built on top of it. And the way we migrate is not very easy. You know, the way that you migrate is kind of like uh, I would make the analogy of basically replacing the parts of a plane in mid-flight. So you have this blockchain that is 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 a living, breathing organism. To upgrade it, you kind of have to do this in-flight upgrade to make sure that everyone is on the same page. And the first phase of that, we call it phase zero, went live this past December. And it's a multi-year process. So it's going to be at least two years uh, before you know the whole network is in this new, new paradigm, new model. And yes, uh, in the future, everything will be in Ethereum using proof of stake. That's correct. Hopefully, it's not actually as scary as your analogy with the plane. <laughs> it's scary in the sense that, uh, you know, there is a lot uh, writing on this, right? Like, um, this needs to be done carefully, needs to be done, um, you know, with intent, um, needs to be done, uh, you know, with many, many different people from all walks of life, analyzing it and understanding the, you know, the pros and cons. Thankfully, it's been something that's been, it's been backed by research over the past four to five years. And uh, finally, it's becoming a reality. Got it. And then just to sort of summarize this conversation on proof of stake, tell people again, remind us, how does proof of stake fit into the big picture of blockchain? You know, I know we just spent a lot of time talking about it, but fit it into the big picture for us so we, we know where all of this fits in. Sure. So the thing we care about with blockchain technology, I'd say, are two things. So first of all, we care about censorship resistance, meaning that, you know, the whole point of having a blockchain is it's something that cannot be taken down by an authority figure, right? Either government, company, people with vested interests, right? This gives you the ability to build things that are not possible in today's world, things that would offer freedom to certain uh, individuals or groups in society. The other thing that we care about is uh, permissionlessness. So this is, it's not really a word, but uh, permissionlessness means that you don't need uh, to be somebody special to use the blockchain. Like anyone around the world that has access to a computer, um, you know, ideally can participate. Right? You don't need a bank to tell you that like, oh, you know, your credit score is not high enough. Sorry. Or you don't need somebody to tell you like, we don't like you because you're part of a, an outgroup of society that doesn't conform to the in-group that we like in society. Yeah. We want it to be accessible and open. And to do this, uh, decentralization is key, right? So you want a blockchain to be as decentralized as possible, meaning that there's no single person. You know, it's not all controlled by Jeff Bezos, for example, or uh, not controlled by a single government. And to do this, you need to make sure that you create a system that is more bulletproof against people trying to attack it, people trying to destroy it. Uh, proof of stake is very helpful here for one big reason that I would like to share. So... In proof of work, right, like like we mentioned, um, to secure the network, you need miners. And miners are basically machines that uh, spend a lot of electricity, right? Who here has benefits? Well, monopolies, for example, that run mining farms in low electricity cost countries have a huge advantage. They have economies of scale, you know, people that control the supply chain of creating miners. Uh, basically, to them, the costs are extremely low. And they have a, a major role in securing a network. Right? It's very easy for them to kind of have a have basically a, a huge monopoly on the on a percentage of the network because their costs are so low. In proof of stake, if you're staking 32 ether, 32 ether is $1,500 per ether, right? A dollar is a dollar. You cannot make your unit economics uh, costs lower by being more powerful and such, right? Like, um, so you get this benefit that everyone is on equal footing. If I'm in a poor country, if I'm in a rich country and I have 32 Ether 
I have the same impact on the network's consensus as somebody who who is in a different place than I am. Um, so it creates a more equal playing field. It still is a high barrier to entry, given the price of becoming a validator in the network. However, we think that fundamentally, this is something that um, is healthy and is is a sustainable way to approach a blockchain. I think that's a really great summary. And you know, we obviously care a lot about those two qualities as well here at Unstoppable Domains. And I'm a big fan of permissionless innovation because like you can be your own bank. It's like you can start your own bank. It's like you can create your own financial services. And this open nature of blockchains just exploded this past couple of years. I mean, it's been exploding for a whole decade, but we saw DeFi come out uh, this past summer and just all these different applications. And they're just things that you couldn't even imagine three or four years ago. And it's kind of like if you build a permissionless system that has these properties that anyone can access it and it's kind of fair to get on, all of a sudden you can get innovation from every place on the planet. And that innovation is always going to be more than what some top-down authority can design and give to people. So I think that, I mean, it's pretty beautiful. I'm a fan of the way you described that. I have some questions for you more practically. What do you see happening in the next year? you know, that Prismatic is working on. I know you guys put out, you know, what's new for Prismatic in 2021. I know Prismatic Labs is working on this proof of stake transition, but what do you, concretely in 2021, what are you guys setting out to accomplish here? How is that going to get us closer to the goal of proof of stake on Ethereum? We build the fundamental code that um, that runs this proof of stake network. Um, at, at the time of, uh, at this time, the network, the current proof of stake network for Ethereum secures around $6 billion worth of value. So, Every line of code that we push, everything that we that we make, affects a large portion of, of of this of this network. A lot of people are betting on on Ethereum to complete its transition to proof of stake. Not only is proof of stake the, a big goal for Ethereum, but it's part of a greater a greater mission of also making it more scalable. And to make Ethereum more scalable, as remember as we said earlier in the episode. Uh, the reason blockchains don't scale at the fundamental level is because everyone in the world needs to be aware of what everyone else is doing and what everyone else has. The way that that's changing in, in, in Ethereum 2.0 is that we are going to make it more scalable by basically uh, saying that, oh, you don't need every node in the network to be aware of everything that's happening at the same time, right? This is something that we call sharding, and uh, it's a very common approach that's done in database systems and such. If the if the listeners might not be familiar with it, um, sharding is uh, you know it's not a new thing. It's uh, it's it's something that's been existing in distributed systems uh, over the last forty years. Uh, the difficult part is doing it in a decentralized and a secure way, right? And I think that's something that the Ethereum researchers have been working towards for the past four to five years, and that's really exciting because now we are building it. Um, over the course of 2021, we are continuing to work with the researchers on basically building out the scalability uh, mechanism for Ethereum. And it will not go live most likely until I'd say like next year, mid next year. My personal, our personal goal is that by the end of next year, the whole promise of Ethereum 2.0 is complete. Everything is running proof of stake. Uh, you have this awesome scalable blockchain that can run all sorts of transactions. So that's our goal. You know, this year we're building, building, building and continuing to ship. People have always, uh, you know, criticized Ethereum for taking too long to ship proof of stake. And the reason, as we covered, is that there are a lot of very difficult technical challenges with doing so. Um, and I can say with confidence that, you know, we did it in, um, in December 2020. And over the coming year and two years, we're going to complete the whole transition. Um, and it's going to be awesome. So I do think sharding is going to have an impact on scaling, right? So you're building it now. And so I have a couple of questions around sharding. So I guess my first one is, 
when you break the blockchain into different pieces so that different computer networks can verify those pieces separately, which is sharding, at least my very basic understanding. Yeah. How many pieces are you going to break it into? Like, are you going to start off breaking it into two pieces? I know we already have, you know, the beacon chain, you know, like you go to two and then you go to four and then you go to eight. Is it a process? Do you immediately just go to 200? How do you decide how many pieces to break it into? And, you know, what's the upper limit there? Or do you know? <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, today the Ethereum blockchain is this, is a single blockchain that has uh, basically what we call a block, which is a, a package of transactions, right? So it's transactions saying like, hey, you know, I'm buying a crypto kitty, or I'm like sending one ether to this person, or I'm receiving this and that. So um, every 10 seconds, we get a new block, you know, so the scalability of the blockchain is limited to basically the fact that we can only fit in so many things every 10 seconds into blocks. Um, and it becomes really expensive to use the blockchain because everyone's trying to use it at the same time and there's not enough space, you know, to fit in my transaction. With ETH2, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be creating 64 kind of chains that are all running together in parallel. And essentially, there's a, there's a root chain, there's a coordinator chain that reaches consensus on all 64 of them. And, uh, and therefore, there you go. So... You know, you can say the output is uh, 64 times the current, uh, the current, the current scalability, right? Uh, and it doesn't stop there. You know, you can have shorter block times in these shards. You can have, uh, you can have a lot of interesting things that you can do on top of that. But at the end of the day, yes, we started with 64 because uh, you know the math and the simulations and all the work that's been done in the past pointed to this being a really good starting point, a really good number. Um, you know, beyond that, there's still potential to expand to that. You know, essentially, that's the way that we're doing it. And it does bring uh, significant scalability benefits. And then what's the relationship between proof of stake and sharding? Is one needed to do the other or, you know, which one comes first? I'm actually just kind of curious to understand the relationship there. Sharding is a way to scale, like the fundamental architecture of how blockchains work. Proof of stake is a consensus mechanism. So it's basically like how do how do different people around the world that run the blockchain, um, how does their software reach consensus on what is the, the truth in the system? So, for example, you could say that you have 1,000 Ether. Right? I can say that I have 2,000 or somebody else could say that you have five. You know, like how do you reach consensus? What is the truth, right? And the truth is what the overwhelming majority believes to be true. Uh, in the blockchain environment. So, you know, proof of stake helps uh, implement uh, a sharding environment, you know, for a few reasons, because it makes it a lot more energy efficient, right? Like we said before, proof of work depends on people running miners at home. And if you have 64 Ethereum chains uh, called shards, um, you would have a lot of electrical output needed to support these, you know, it would be, it would be scaling uh, linearly with the number of uh, shards that you have. So it just doesn't work, you know. I think it's 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 fundamentally it's fundamentally at odds, in my opinion. That's the reason why proof of stake is very uh, it's it's inter integral to to this plan. I had actually not heard that uh, said before, but that actually makes a lot of sense because if you have sixty four different shards for Ethereum and then they all needed to have their own mining network in order to stay secure, the day that you go to sharding, if you stick with miners your security model on any one of those shards, it would now be 164th as secure as the main net, depending on how it works. I'm sure there's some ways that people could merge mine or something like that. But if you do proof of stake, your security model is going to be, uh, there's a limited amount of ETH for staking. So any one of those shards, I would have to run the math. But yeah, that sounds really good. Thanks for explaining that. That makes a lot of sense. Um, I have one one final thing. So there's a, there's a lot of skepticism 
in the blockchain and crypto world for a lot of reasons. There's been a lot of um, you know projects out there that didn't pan out. So for people who say that proof of stake is impossible or like it's just never going to happen, how do you confidently respond from your view here at Prismatic that like this is definitely on its way uh, and it's just a matter of uh, taking the time in order to put it in place correctly? Absolutely. I think we have to understand the concerns that people have around this technology um, and, and really analyze it with a grain of salt. So I'll tell you the major concerns people have with proof of stake. The first one that people have is related to the security model. So like we said before, like the blockchain is secure because there's a lot of real electrical input going into secure or like real people spent their hard and earned money on electricity and on mining machines to secure the network, right? If you want to like basically like kill the network, you better be prepared to spend a lot more than they are spending, you know, and like it's secure because it, it's it's basically converting, you know, your real, you know, your real maybe salary, income, money that you use to spend on real electricity into a secure network. It translates directly into it, you know. When you use proof of stake, like we said, you're putting at stake some asset that lives on the blockchain. People say it's not tied to the real world. It's just this like magical digital coin that isn't worth anything. You know, how can you say that it's secure enough? What gives it value, right? If it goes to zero tomorrow, is the blockchain secure or not? And I think you have to you have to really think about it carefully. Um, I think, in my opinion, um, yes, of course it has it has value. Like uh, you know, Ether today has value. Can it go to zero? Uh, unlikely if, if Ethereum is providing is providing basically the like a ground for for amazing projects and ideas to to grow and to live. There's a lot of interesting use cases and applications on Ethereum today. Would it go to zero if there are so many applications that depend on something like this? Probably not. If you're starting a new proof of stake chain from scratch, then yes, I agree with your concerns that um, that the thing you're using to secure the network is is within the network itself that is worthless uh, in isolation. So. That's the major argument. Um, Ethereum has value today. Proof of stake is live. Um, it's it went live this past December. Um, there are over a hundred thousand entities of thirty-two ether called validators securing the network today, spread all over the world. Um, you have hundreds of nodes running the network. Um, so yes, it, it it works. It's out there and it exists. You know, that's one major argument that people have against it. Of course. Well, uh, you heard it from the horse's mouth. And I think that was actually a really good explanation there. First of all, it's already out there if you're curious and it's working today. And then uh, secondly, Raul was saying that um, Ethereum had a bootstrap mechanism where we did this mining process where we you know, built value on the network over time and that that helps you transition to proof of stake because you're not starting at zero. And that's part of what that does it. And uh, maybe that's how proof of stake networks should be launched, right? Like through some mining process and then you transition at some point. Anyway, all interesting stuff. Final question, <laughs> what are the uh, interesting remaining problems on proof of stake specifically for Ethereum now that it's up and running? Um, you know, just off the top of your head, what are the couple of remaining problems that you guys are trying to address maybe this year? Sure. So this year, uh, as mentioned, we're, we're you know the proof of stake part is is done. It's out there. The next step is really the sharding aspect. So how do you you know split the network into these sixty four little chains that then can reach consensus with each other? Uh, you know we know how that works. At this moment in time, it's mostly of an engineering problem, and it's mostly about needing it to be built and tested at scale. So that's currently what we're working on in terms of unanswered research problems, right? What we're working on is what we call layer one scalability. So we're basically changing the fundamental infrastructure of how Ethereum works, like underneath the hood. Um, but there's some really interesting work being done on what we call layer two scaling, right? So 
there's a lot of stuff that can happen off the blockchain, right? Maybe a blockchain is not a great environment um, to scale. Maybe by some people think that by definition, a blockchain should not scale because there's a trade-off between scalability and security. Um, I say that it's possible for it to scale and it's possible to scale even further if you use something called the layer two mechanism. So these are like, you know, off-chain mechanisms, right? Like uh, perhaps the audience could be familiar with uh, something called the Lightning Network on Bitcoin where essentially, you know, a lot of stuff happens off chain and then you settle a transaction on chain. So, you know, I can pay you for coffee. You can pay me for coffee. And at the very end, we're like, okay, we're done interacting. Um, let's get, we're, we're going to settle it on the blockchain. So the blockchain serves as a settlement layer. Yeah. We, we actually just did uh, a series of episodes on exactly that layer two uh, solutions on Ethereum. So for people listening, I would say go back. I think episode 16 is where that starts and you can catch up and we cover those. We have three episodes covering those different ones and there's a lot of them. And you just mentioned was like state channels or something like that. Okay. Well, Raul, let's kind of switch gears just a little bit here. <laughs> let's move over. I've got a couple of you know, Ethereum water cooler questions that I just have to ask you because you're deep in it. One of the first ones I got to ask is, are you familiar with gas token? And if you are familiar with gas token, do you have an opinion on whether they should, we should continue to keep gas token or not? I just, I have to ask. Yeah, I'm familiar with, with gas token. So, so in terms of like whether or not they should stay, I mean, I think it's an interesting experiment, right? I think it's, it's really cool. Like why not, you know, like they're on Ethereum. Um, what's interesting about uh, gas, um, so for, for listeners that might be unfamiliar, is that since we mentioned Ethereum is a public good, right? You have to, like, somebody has to pay for it. Otherwise, uh, it's going to be taken advantage of, right? This is called uh, you know, the tragedy of the commons uh, problem. Um, so to pay for using Ethereum, you need to pay in something called gas. And that's basically, it's paid in Ether, right? It's paid in, it's paid in some amount of ETH. So the more expensive computation you do, you have to pay more gas for it. Like when I send a transaction, I have to pay a transaction fee. This money goes to the miners, the people that basically run the, the network. Lately, there's been a lot of uh, a lot of basically uh, uncertainty and, and fear because the prices on, on Ethereum are really, really high, even to send basic transactions. You have people spending $100 to just, uh, I don't know, like send a $5 transaction or something like that. Um, it's, it's really, it's unsustainable and it's crazy. And the reason is fundamentally uh, supply and demand um, scalability limitation problem. So, yeah, I think things like gas token, which try to like uh, build interesting things on top of the gas model. I mean, why? I mean, it's cool. I, I like it. I think it's interesting. <laughs> I'm going to take the other side of that. I'm going to say we should get rid of it because it's clogging up block space. But that's OK. It's the blockchain. People can have their own opinions. All right. I've got another one. And you're welcome to pass on this one because this is a hot topic. But uh, there's also another proposal update to Ethereum to make it more predictable for wallets on gas prices when sending transactions, uh, EIP-1559, I'm sure you're familiar with it. What's your opinion on EIP-1559? Do you think it's a it's something that we definitely should do or you're welcome to pass if you don't want to take the question as well? Of course, I'm in favor of it. You know, I think everything everything I'm in favor of is in the, for the future of Ethereum, for the long-term benefit. Essentially, what this debate comes down to is that uh, you know, miners are making a lot of money, not only from mining the blocks on the blockchain, but also from taking transaction fees. As we mentioned, there's a lot of demand for block space in Ethereum. So people will pay a lot of money to get their transactions across. Who makes this money? The miners make their money. One of the things that we're trying to do is basically, basically a lot of this gas instead could be burnt. It doesn't need to go to the miners. These fees don't need to go to the miners. Uh, of course, miners are going to complain because it's going to reduce their short-term, short-term, uh, you know, operating income. And, you know, why wouldn't they be upset about this? However, this will have a benefit of reducing the, uh, you know, the net, net issuance on Ethereum. 
it's going to basically have a huge benefit um, towards more predictable gas prices, as you mentioned. But the people that are against this are typically the miners that have uh, short-term profits in mind. Um, whereas if you think about it logically, it's a good thing for the future of the network. Yeah, so of course, I, I'm 100% in favor of it. I think everyone should be. All right, Raul. Well, I'm going to jump in and interrupt this tech talk a little bit and talk about some more fun things. So obviously, everybody's talking about NFTs today. So I'm just wondering, do you own a CryptoPunk NFT or CryptoKitty or any other NFTs? I don't own a CryptoPunk. Yeah, I do own NFTs, actually. I think they're really cool. It took me a while to, to click for a while. So, you know, I think what's really special about NFTs in particular is uh, what we called uh, what we call provenance. So you can like the cool thing um, is that say that you own a token that was issued by a very famous artist, you know, the critics could say like, oh, why does this have any value, right? Like I could just take a photo of, the, of their art or I could download a PDF or a JPEG. Well, the, the reason it has value is because there exists a provable event that this famous artist gave you like this rare token that is, there cannot be more copies of it. It comes directly from the wallet address of the person that created it. So that's what makes it special, you know, like a few hundred years into the future, like you have this thing that was touched by the artist. It was created and minted by the artist. I think provenance is really exciting. I do think that the market is fairly overblown with any sort of random, you know, indie artist trying to create uh, NFT and trying to sell for a lot of money. Um, I don't think any of these will appreciate unless the person becomes a legend uh, for their art. Um, well, who knows? You know, I think it, it's it's impossible to accurately price this stuff. Um, but if there's people willing to pay for it, uh, it will have value, right? Yeah, for sure. I really like the way you explained that. And I think, you know, a lot of people are still struggling to understand the value of NFTs. And I think the whole idea of provenance is a really big, you know, concept to help people understand why NFTs are so valuable. So do you kind of see the NFT bubble right now as just being a, a hype cycle that's going to burst one day and, you know, all of this is going to go away? Or do you see the value of NFTs sticking and really lasting into the long term? Yeah, I think a lot of them will go to near zero, probably. I think what excites me personally the most, I see provenance as the reason why, like the reason why some of these will hold long-term value, uh, you know, because somebody's only going to be willing to buy it from you if like the artist or the creator, uh, you know, has something rare or something something unique to offer in society. Um, if it's just a random person, uh, I fail to see how that uh, how the NFT is going to appreciate and then on a more personal note, I know that you were a Teal Fellow back in college, which means that you're also a college dropout. Is that right? Or are you allowed to go back and finish after the fellowship? Sure. sure. So officially, the Teal Fellowship forces you to take a two-year leave of absence, right? I mean, they don't tell you to drop out. Like, you know, nobody can force you to, uh, to completely drop out, right? When I was in school, I was at Harvard. Harvard has a very, um, a very flexible time-off policy after so many other students kind of left and kind of never came back. Um, I think they, they are extremely flexible. Um, in my case, I, I took time off and through the Teal Fellowship is actually how I discovered the folks working on Ethereum early on. I took a few years off to kind of explore this, to work on this stuff. I was uh, right, right, I only had one semester of senior year left before graduating. So, you know, fun fact, but I actually did end up finishing my, my, my half senior year. And I did it all remotely and I did it while working full time and everything. Um, I just did it mostly for family, you know. So, yeah, I did. I did finish it. That's awesome. And is that also how you met Vitalik was through that fellowship? 
Yeah, so he was earlier in that. He was a few years into the fellowship, um, and I think there was a there was like a com- there was like a little meetup, like a conference or what whatnot, and a lot of the fellows at the time were working on Ethereum related stuff. So yeah, that's how I became aware uh, of that. Mm-hmm. Got it. Got it. Okay. Well, in this next segment, we call this explain your tweet. This is where I go into your Twitter, find some cryptic or interesting or funny tweets and give you a chance to explain them. Um, In the interest of time, I'm just going to call out one tweet. And so this is something that you tweeted back in November of 2020. Uh, You tweeted, we managed to get three truckloads of mattresses and lots of baby supplies with some of the crypto donations received for this. And we're planning on buying a lot more throughout the week. And this was in response to a GoFundMe that you had tweeted to help Honduras with uh, hurricane, the aftermath of Hurricane Eta after that swept through. And so this is really interesting because you're actually also the founder of a nonprofit called the Honduran Biotechnology Organization. Tell us a little bit more about what that is and, you know, also how you were able to set up a GoFundMe that, you know, got people in the crypto community to donate crypto. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, I wish I wish they could have donated crypto to the GoFundMe. GoFundMe only, only allows you to like I think pay through like credit card or something. But I did get some uh, some crypto to a donation address that I set up. I'm born and raised in Honduras. Uh, my whole family is there, um, and we had a hurricane that devastated a lot of my city, uh, especially a lot of people. Uh, thankfully, direct family members were unaffected, but you know, friends of family, people that I know, people that people that I care about, uh, lost their homes. You know, were stranded on their roofs for five days without you know a lot of food to go around. You know, of course, during COVID as well. So we needed a way to help. Um, you know. Thankfully, some of my family, you know, it helps a lot on, on, on with charity, um, it through churches and different organizations. And wanted to just do something that um, could have a very clear impact and we can demonstrate the impact to the donors. So my aunt was on the ground, like, you know, buying food, mattresses, perishables, and we were taking photos and sending them to the donors as, as they happened. And, you know, with even $5, you can feed, you know, a family of four for at least two to three meals a day, you know, so... I think that made a massive difference. Even just getting like a hundred dollar donation um, helps so many kids, helps so many parents. Uh, it's amazing, and we received, uh, we met the goal in a pretty quick amount of time. So I think just showing people that, like, hey, look, like this isn't going to some like charity organization that might have bureaucracy. This is directly, like, you know, my family's going to be buying the supplies, and we're going to do it. Uh, we had a lot of people helping out, so that was really amazing. That's awesome. And then the organization itself, the mission of the organization is sort of to raise awareness for the importance of life sciences throughout Honduras. Um, so oh, I'm just yeah. ke- so, so the organization. So that's something that I worked on throughout high school. Actually, um, it doesn't exist today. The donations were just done through were just basically organized by my family that's on the ground buying supplies for the people in need. So it was done through just uh, us, uh, just as individuals. When I was uh, reading about that, I was just wondering: Are you a life extension advocate? Life extension? Uh, yeah, I don't. I don't see why not. You know, I think. I think it makes sense. Yeah, I do agree that there's a lot of a lot about aging that we don't know. Arguments against, like, okay, we don't we don't need more overpopulation. We need people to die to like you know keep keep sustainability in the world. I see. I see a lot more benefits uh, than cons. So I'm just curious. I, I love the progress of science in the last hundred years. I think there's a lot more that can be done. For sure. All right. Well, thank you so much, Raul, for being here. I love this conversation. Before you go, just tell people where they can find you if they want to connect with you personally, um, as well as where they can go to learn more about Prismatic Labs. Yes, of course. So uh, Prismatic Labs, if you if you look us up on, on, on our website, prismaticlabs.com, P-R-Y-S-M-A-T-I-C uh, and labs. 
And then personally, I'm on Twitter. Just go Google um, Raul Jordan or uh, look me up. Uh, I'm connected to all things related to Ethereum proof of stake, scalability, and uh, and basically all the work that goes behind that. So, um, yeah, just, uh, you know, big things are coming to Ethereum. Um, you know, it's shipping and it's happening and it's going to be awesome. Yeah, I'm excited to see all the changes and all the updates. Thank you so much again, Raul. Thank you, Matt, for co-hosting with me as always. Thanks, listeners, for tuning in. And we'll be back again soon with another episode of the Unstoppable Podcast. Great. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Unstoppable Podcast. If something we said today resonated with you, please rate, subscribe, and download our podcast and share this episode on social media with your network. And remember, the fun doesn't have to stop when the episode ends. You can continue this conversation with us on Twitter by tweeting your questions, thoughts, and ideas to Unstoppable Web. We look forward to chatting with you and thanks again for listening.